0: You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast.
1: You're listening to episode 416 and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. Steve Lynch is an engineering manager at Root Insurance, working with a full stack team with a Rails backend and React frontend. He's been working in software engineering for the past five years and prior to that was a middle and high school English teacher for 10 years in both Peace Corps and New York City public schools. In his non-work time, he's an amateur runner and boxer, mediocre video gamer and cross-stitcher, and avid reader and cook. Welcome to the show, Steve. Is this your first podcast?
2: Hey, welcome. Thanks for having me. I will say, I think this is my first podcast as a guest. I will say that for about two years, a few years ago, I had an ABO-based podcast called "Boule Boo with Zach and Steve. It is defunct, even though the spirit of it lives. I think the weirdest thing about it was we had a, a small following in Britain amongst like people in their late 20s who were very passionate about the listeners.
1: That is so fabulous. Are the episodes still available to listen to?
2: Yes, they're available. They're not all excellent. I'll put as my caveat. So don't blame me if some of them are strange.
1: OK, well, I mean, that's quite the teaser. So, Steve, <laughs> now that we have
2: your podcast origin story, what is your developer origin story? So It started when I was really young. My stepdad was, I believe, self-taught in like the seventies. And so I'm a bit older. So in the like mid eighties, late eighties, when I was growing up, there was always computers around the house and he really wanted us to get into them. And so I learned basic. And what is that one where the turtle moves around trying to like design that you give it directions to turn and move to draw stuff? What is that one called?
1: I forget, but I totally remember doing that in high school. So listeners, please tweet at me when you recall what we're talking about here. But I can picture it.
2: Yeah. So that so I was doing a lot of that. I liked basic and then he wanted me to go from like basic to like he threw a COBOL manual at me. I can't imagine a less pleasant experience for a nine year old who's really into Amy Grant than just giving them like a COBOL manual and being like jump into the waters. So that really piqued my interest and I got more into music as I became a teenager, but I returned back to software development and code in my late 20s, early 30s when I wanted to pivot out of education. And so very long story short, I went to a coding bootcamp and then about five years ago started working as a software engineer.
1: And is that what brought you into Ruby and Rails? Was it because of the coding
2: bootcamp that you chose? The coding bootcamp was Java and JavaScript. And my first job I was at was Java and Ember. And shortly after I switched companies and where I'm currently at at root is Ruby on Rails. And so that's why I am now part of the Ruby on Rails community.
1: I am so impressed that a coding bootcamp would go with Java and JavaScript, just with all the confusion of people trying to say that JavaScript is Java. So I think that's an an impressive thing to do. What was the biggest difference for you from jumping from Java into Rails?
2: Rails is easy to read. (laughs) Java is not. I feel like one of the things about Java is you can be more specific and more tightly controlled. There's just like it does a lot and can do a lot. And so much of that is hidden away in Ruby and in Rails. All of that is put in the background so you can write the code that actually matters. And so for me, that was one of the biggest differences is I got to spend much of my time writing the business logic and writing the stuff I needed to for cards, features, et cetera, instead of worrying about all of that weird cruft that's involved when you're working in Java.
1: Well, I'm going to admittedly say that I did some LinkedIn stalking, which wasn't that good of stalking because I sent you a connection. So you're fully aware that I looked at your LinkedIn profile. So the jig is up. Yeah, I saw that you transitioned from software engineer to engineering manager in 2021. So how did you know that management was right for you?
2: I think some of it is instinctual. When I have worked on teams the past three and a half years here at Root, the things that always intrigued me were around people, around process, around communication. I remember I would have one-on-ones with one of my managers, Jason, and I wanted to eat up the whole time by talking about like, Hmm, I wonder how we can tie our team process to company values. And I'm wondering if like, this is the right feedback cycle. I wasn't talking about how we make our code base more configurable. (laughs) I was more interested in like, how do we solve the problem of humans working on difficult problems together? And that's just always been where my brain goes, especially after teaching for so long. And I think my second manager here at Root said to me, This was like within a month of me working at Root. He was like, oh, you should be a manager. The way you talk and think about things, that's manager stuff. And so I've spent the past couple of years ramping up technically. So I had enough of a knowledge base and contacts to be able to like help lead a team. But knowing like my real love and my real passion is for people and process and communication.
1: Is it important to you as a manager that you remain technical?
2: Yes, it's important to me to remain technical. However, it's important for me to be able to communicate really clearly with project leads on where things are to help hear their decision making, to point out times like, I remember we did a feature like this before and we leveraged this particular pattern. I wonder if it's approachable here. But in terms of the technical implementation details of PRs and stuff, I let the other engineers on the team have the discussions around that. So yes, I should be technical, but I think that there are people better leveraged to make really smart, complicated technical decisions.
1: I feel for me as an engineering manager, one of my chief jobs is being a really excellent translator between technical and non-technical people. I get both sides and it's important to clear up any misunderstandings. And for those who have seen my conference talks, I try to be the grease in the wheels Mm -hmm. So just making sure that the right people are getting connected and that they're talking the same language. So that way there's no misunderstandings as to what a project needs to do.
2: Absolutely. It's really important that managers have technical acumen and also people acumen. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to use the term soft skills because I think it does the really difficult work of understanding people and motivation by calling it soft, but I rarely hear of teams that fell apart because the manager wasn't technical enough. You often hear of teams that fall apart or fail or are not working together because the manager just doesn't understand people or doesn't know how to elicit the kinds of things we need out of people in order to like get best learning and best work and be productive and all of that stuff. So that's why in my mind, it's important to be technical, but I need to make sure the right conversations are happening with the right people with the right set of knowledge so that we can make the best kinds of trade-offs.
1: I agree. How has your background as a teacher helped you?
2: The short answer is enormously, (laughs) but it was not really apparent to me when I started doing this job. I think one, a couple of things that teachers do that are really important are they have to think about the big goal in mind. So as a teacher, my goal, I had to think every day, we're here to become better readers, better writers, better thinkers, and better speakers. How can I ensure that the work we're doing today matches up to those goals? And if it doesn't, it doesn't belong here. I think teachers also have to do a really good job of understanding systems of support and levels of support, distinguish individual versus group needs and how to balance those in structures. They need to read and understand group dynamics. They also have to manage... Projects and timelines. So there's just a lot about team management that a teacher does every single minute of every day. And I had 10 years of that practice. So for me, I am so grateful I got the opportunity to work in education and work with so many skilled teachers and incredible students because it's given me a lot of insight into people and process and how people work and how you can like leverage group knowledge to create something really incredible.
1: I agree. I think your background lends perfectly to an engineering manager.
2: I feel sometimes, and maybe it's hard to make that case because I don't know how to make that case, but maybe some of this is my lack of confidence as a semi-early career professional, but sometimes it's really hard to sit in like an interview and say, I know I've only been as an engineering manager for six months, or I've only been in this career for four years, but I have, 15 years of knowing precisely how to read a room and how to push people towards the right questions and answers.
1: That's a really good point. I am such a huge fan of second career developers. And in some ways, I'm very jealous of people who know very early on that this is what they want to be doing. Mm. But I also believe I wouldn't have gotten here if I hadn't had a second career before this, that I have unique, very unique skill set that I would not have gotten unless I had spent my time in marketing and business development and product management. I think it's shaped me into a different type of manager and one that isn't the same as if I'd been just a traditionally trained software engineer.
2: Sure. Sometimes communities can become echo chambers where you're sort of like recycling the same ideas or like every five years, someone revives an idea that's already been done. One thing that I'm really intrigued by, and I think like my talk gets at this, is how can I take structures or ideas or processes from education and put them to good use in engineering? There's something I'm trying to pilot at work called a professional learning community where a small group of people in education get together and it's inquiry based and it's data focused and it's all about identifying what are the things that work in order to get the outcomes we want. And it's a very tightly protocol process and it was really powerful in education. And I was like, oh, I should try this in engineering and see how that works. You can find other solution sets when you've worked in other contexts, and then you bring them into your other work.
1: If you've been considering trying Honey Badger, now is the time. They have two really cool new features I just learned about. They now have status pages and can monitor your SSL certs. Whether US East 1 is down or you forgot to add a configuration file, everyone has an outage from time to time. When your next outage occurs, transparency is critical. The difference between a minor annoyance that people soon forget and a fiasco that creates sustained resentment is in how you communicate. They just shipped an update that can help communicate outages to your customers, public status pages with custom domains and branding. Many certificate authorities such as Let's Encrypt will automatically renew your SSL certificates for you. But if you manage your own certificates, you have to remember to renew them yourself. If you forget, your customers won't be able to access your website and Honey Badger will sound the alarm. Honey Badger Uptime Monitoring can now warn you before your SSL certificates expire so that you remember to update them before your customers are affected. Check out HoneyBadger.io to learn more. You just hinted about your talk and I want to dive into that next. So you gave this excellent talk at RubyConf called I Read It But Don't Get It or How to Tackle Technical Texts, which I mean, I feel almost, Steve, it was crafted for me. I'm someone who has definitely struggled to read technical texts. I'm currently the lead for WNB's book club. And so I'm learning a lot along the way. And so like, this was the content that I needed. I'm curious, what inspired you to
2: submit this to RubyConf? The inspiration was I didn't know how to read technical texts. I was reading a sandy practical object-oriented design in Ruby Rails. And I was just struggling to make sense of it. And I was noticing that my patterns of becoming disengaged, not understanding the text. Every time I was in an engineering book club, I had nothing to say. And it is never the case in my life where I had nothing to say. (laughs) So I started to think, oh, I remember when I had students like this. I wonder if I can use those strategies I used to teach 12-year-olds for how to read fiction books, if that would work here. So I put it to work when I was on like a week long vacation and I noticed an increase in my own engagement. So then I thought, this feels like a talk. And my mentor at the time, Noel Rappin, who is a member of the Ruby on Rails community, he said, oh, you should submit this for a talk because this is a weird topic and it's enough to get you in. So let's take a big swing. And so that's why I submitted it.
0: I
1: love that. Shout out to Noel for pushing you to do that. That happened to me at a RubyConf talk as well. Back in 2019, I gave a talk on how to quit your job. Mm -hmm. And I was inspired to give that talk because I had been talking to Nick Schwatterer about like my thoughts about quitting. And he's like, this sounds like a good talk. So call out to the Ruby community. If you hear someone talking about something unique, please push them to apply it to a talk because we need these kinds of different ideas to make it into these conferences for sure. Mm -hmm. Now listeners should definitely watch the talk because Steve you are clearly a born presenter so i'm going to compliment <laughs> i'm going to compliment you right there but i, I do want to dig into some of the points you made why is it so
2: hard to read technical texts in general so i think there's a, a couple of potential reasons when i think about this so like one thing for me is i think one reason that people in software engineering read technical texts is they think there is a gap in my knowledge There is something I want to do that I cannot do, and I believe this text will help me do that thing. And when you place that kind of pressure on yourself, I need to read this thing so I understand this thing so I can do this other thing, that at least to me creates a level of anxiety. And so that means like reading a technical text like already amps up the stakes and that can make it difficult to like really enjoy or appreciate the text if you feel like every paragraph needs to give me something so i can make it worth my while i also think technical texts what you're reading in like one or two minutes took the author months years to like work through understand come to a conclusion about and so those books are distillations of incredibly complicated ideas and it means like we're putting a bar really high for us to understand in a few minutes, what is actually a super complicated idea. And I think the last point is people say this about code. You know, if there's a bug in the code, if it was easy, it would have already been fixed. Mm -hmm. And the same thing about these books is if what the books are telling you is easy or obvious, there wouldn't be a book about it. So all of these things are about complicated things. They've taken the authors, years to make sense of and write. And that just means they're like, they can be very dense and require a lot of thought and care when you read them.
1: That's incredibly insightful because you're right. If it was a simple concept, then you might see it maybe as a screencast or a blog post or hell, a tweet storm. Yeah, you're right. Like these authors had to pitch these books to publishers and justify that the concepts that they're bringing here are revolutionary they are worthy of like a 100 pages of straight paragraphs of words, but then also code snippets as well. Mm -hmm. I know for me, it's incredibly difficult to read a technical text and you've got a code snippet that is spanning three or four pages.
2: Oh my God. It's
1: it's a lot. Like I don't even read code that way. And so I can't run it from the book. I can't prove that it works. And you're almost taking for granted that what you're being shown is the truth and would still work today.
2: You say two things that are really important and interesting there. One, I think is, and this comes up in the talk, is that we believe that what we read in the book is the truth. If it's written on the page, it must be true. And one of the points I want to invite readers of these books to think about is that it's not the truth. You could read something and and think, oh, I 1000% disagree with that point for this reason. That these technical texts are one person's interpretation of an approach or how something should work. Oftentimes, I should say, right? We shouldn't necessarily feel like we have to adopt all of the things they tell us in the book. Really, it's an invitation for us to examine our own thinking and work styles.
1: So Steve, (laughs) how should a reader try to connect to a text then?
2: The easiest thing to do if you have some years of experience, so if you have one or two years of experience, the easiest thing you can do is think about the code that you've written, the code that you've looked at, the systems that you've worked in, and then try to apply what you're reading to that, to think, have I seen code that looks like this? Have I written code that looks like this? Does this remind me of PRs that I've seen? To start to make connections between the theoretical ideas in a text and the kinds of code that you've seen. So that's one way you can do it. The other way you can do it is connecting to other books you read. Those are the two that easiestly come to mind. But I think because so much of why people read this book is to be able to have skills to do something differently in their free time or their job. Like We want it to be applicable. So I think connecting by f- thinking about code that applies similarly or doesn't apply is the best and easiest way to try to connect to that text.
1: So a good example is if you're not actively using Sidekick at your job, digging into a book about how to optimize the usage of Sidekick might not be the right choice.
2: Right. Yeah. And it's hard to say you shouldn't read this book, read what you're interested in. But I think if you're struggling to get into technical texts, try to pick books at first that are very close to the domain, the languages the context, the patterns that you already use, that's going to make the bar lower. I think the other point that I bring up in the talk is maybe if you want to optimize for Sidekick, maybe reading a book about Sidekick is not your best way to do it. Maybe you need to watch YouTube videos. Maybe you take a Udemy course. There's all these different ways in engineering that we can learn about it. And technical texts are one way to do it. Not always the best, but it is one way that you can access new information.
1: Such a good point. Now, I will say one thing that I have stopped doing with technical texts is reading them in bed.
2: because Why?
1: They're heavy. They are heavy. I mean, they're a great way to make you tired and fall asleep. But I have learned that it takes me about three pages of a technical text to put me down. So I'm going to get nowhere with that.
2: Smart. (laughs)
1: However, if there's one tip that readers should be doing while reading that's active, what should it be?
2: The easiest one, I think, is to check for understanding where you pause every paragraph, every half page, every page, whatever makes the most sense for the book you're reading. And just like what I will literally do is close the book and then think back on what I read and then try to say it back to myself. That's the easiest one. That's one where you don't need Actual knowledge. You don't need to have personal experience. You don't need to have written any code. You can just repeat back the idea. For me, as I'm trying to like constantly one up my technical understanding, connecting is the most important one. So that'll be my like my split is if you're reading something that you have no context into, you should try summarizing. If you're reading something that's applicable to your job, connecting is the most potent of the five skills that I identify.
0: Hi everyone, it's Brian, your co-host. And to me, connecting developers and startups has been the best job in the world. When I founded Mirror Placement in 2006, I didn't know anything about recruiting other than what I had learned while growing my software agency. My developer colleagues really disliked recruiters. And since developers are just about the nicest people I know, I thought, what could recruiters be doing so badly that causes my good-natured friends to despise them so much? And it turned out a lot. Their horror stories included tales of jobs and companies that didn't exist, of recruiters not sharing the name of the company they were recruited for, and frequently, the anonymous, well-funded tech startup whose job descriptions sounded a lot like a word salad of technical buzzwords. I learned about having your resume spammed out to dozen of companies without your consent. I heard of last-minute salary and title changes after many hours of invested time and interviewing. And I have to admit, when I listened to all of these tales, I couldn't help but think, it could be so much better. So I gave it a shot. And thanks to you, 16 years later, it is better. You've shown that radical transparency works and that for developers and startups, pursuing long-term relationships at the expense of short-term transactions is always the right call. Together, we've made a difference at hundreds of startups and seeing careers blossom and startups change the world has been a great privilege. And I am so thankful to you for giving me this seat and to Brittany for sharing this podcast. So I just wanted to say thank you for allowing me to help accelerate your career and your startup and to know that I'm rooting for you in the next step of your journey. Thanks.
1: Now, I'm curious, Steve, do you have a strong preference? Do you read on a Kindle? Do you read on your phone or are you a paperback person?
2: Okay. I read all the time. I'm a huge public library user, so I love reading physical books. I'm going to say something potentially hurtful to the entire community. <laughs> I think software engineering books are so ugly. And so I don't want them on my shelf.
1: <laughs> I have an opinion about that because WNB is currently reading a book from Stripe Press called Working in Public. Steve, it is the most gorgeous software book I have ever seen. It is wait. displayed very prominently on my shelf, but I completely agree with you. Yeah, You shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but oh, do I?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So I'll say that I think I engage better in a book. I can like put my post-its. I can underline stuff if it's a physical book. I struggle with buying physical books because software engineering books are often not cheap. And I keep very few physical books in my own house. So that's the weird balance I'm always trying to figure out with reading these.
1: I'm the same. The majority of my physical books are recipe books because I like to have them while I'm actually doing the
2: cooking. (gasps) Same. Another way in which we're secret twins. We are
1: secret twins. So, are there any texts from our community that have eluded you or you have finally conquered? For me, I have never been able to conquer Ruby under the microscope. It is a long term goal for myself.
2: Oh, I haven't approached that one. I'll have to do it. I'll say the one that came to mind that like really highlighted my inability to read technical texts was a few years ago. There was like an informal reading group for junior engineers. And the book is called Patterns of Enterprise Application Architecture. That's a doozy. <laughs> it is a doozy. It is a lot of nouns. And I remember at the time I was dating another software engineer. We were on like a road trip and he was like, can you read some of it out loud to me? And I would read it and he'd be like, mm. Yes, absolutely. And I remember being like, what? (laughs) How are you reacting so emotionally to this incredibly dry text? So that's one in my mind. If I can ever read patterns of enterprise application architecture and be like, oh, my God, I was just saying this yesterday, then I know I will have made it as a technical reader.
1: Oh, what a goal. I
0: love that so much.
1: (laughs) So you had mentioned to me pre-show that you had listened to episode 414 with Drew Bragg. And you mentioned to me that you had some opinions about our opinions around being connected
2: to the community. And I'd love to hear them. Yeah. So in that episode, you both had mentioned that if you're interviewing a candidate and they say that they're not connected to the community, it's a red flag. And I thought, oh, God, Brittany's going to be really mad at me (laughs) when she finds out I'm not connected to the community So one thing it makes me think is like some of this is my own sense of imposter syndrome. I feel I don't have enough technical knowledge and I don't have the raw primal desire to write code every day, to really engage in like the Ruby on rails community, for example, a lot of the people who are super engaged in like online communities, especially with like development and engineering have like very strong technical opinions or they're doing something really novel. And for me, I don't really know where like a former teacher who has strong opinions about feedback cycles, (laughs) where do I fit in that? And the second part of it is just frankly, I don't do social media. I have found it to have negative impacts on my mental and emotional health. And so I disengage a lot. But shortly after I listened to your podcast, I subscribed to two different newsletters and I found them really, really useful. For me, it's really tricky. And I guess I'm wondering, like, why do you think of it as a red flag? Why do you think of me, Brittany, as a red flag? Oh, God. It's like the title of
1: the episode right there. But in all seriousness, Steve, here's my thoughts on it. I think that we're at a stage with both the Ruby and Rails community where we've had some drama and we want to invite more people into this community. And it's only going to work. If we have people actively engaging with the community, I am on the same stance as you. Like we are recording this in the midst of the Twitter debacle. And if you told me right now that Twitter would be ripped away from me, fine, take it. I don't care. I deleted Facebook and Instagram two years ago. and It was one of the best decisions I have ever made. And it was for the same reason. It was definitely for mental health. I don't enjoy feelings of FOMO. I don't enjoy seeing emotions and feeling like I have to keep up, I just don't think it's great. And so Mm -hmm. I'm on your side on that front. That being said, I think it's important that the folks that are writing Ruby and Rails care about the community and want to push it forward because it's the only way that we're going to be able to bring in experienced and junior developers into this community and continue to have it to grow. So I'm not requiring you, Steve, as an engineering (laughs) manager, to be super involved in the community. But what I kind of expect from you as an engineering manager is to be motivating your employees that report to you who are super technical and want to be involved in the community and help them find ways to be that. And so what Noel did for you in identifying a talk that should be brought to a conference, I'd like to see you do that as well. And provide a place at work where they can practice that talk and, you know, be able to get them to bring code snippets from work and getting that authorization process in place. Really being involved in the community is so varied and really just reading a newsletter once a week. To Mm me, that's being involved.
2: As you're talking, I'm scanning my emotions in my body for like, what's going on in there? And I think one of the things that really comes to mind, it reminds me of when I used to write music. I stopped making music because I thought, who wants to hear Another white guy talk about how sad he is. (laughs) In that same way, I sometimes ask myself, what do I have to say about engineering or engineering management that's so interesting? And some of that is on me to say, I should step up and I should just believe it. But that's some of the stuff that's at the heart of my thinking. The other part being that I think there's a lot of debate online as well about what business and what capitalism and companies require of us in our free time. And so some of this feels a little bit political to me, where I think in my free time, I think about free time. I think about my running. I think about my boxing. I think about my cooking. I think about my dog. I think about my friends. My free time does not get to be capitalized by all the stuff I do during the day. But that's also really tricky because there's a lot of, really cool stuff about our jobs. And also it would behoove me in my career to also spend time in my free time sharpening those skills.
1: Yeah, that's such a good comment. So for me, I try to sit as much of it as I can during the workday. So you and I are recording right now at uh, nine o'clock Eastern. So typically I would be working right now, but this was important to me to be able to record this. Mm-hmm. But you're right. I actively have to choose sometimes to prioritize content from the community Over things that I might be passionate about. I might be going for a run and I might listen to a technical podcast instead of listening to music. Is that a sacrifice? That's really up for debate. But in some ways, I try to multitask the things that I can to consume content so that way I can keep up. But you're right. That is definitely making a choice and not one that I'm saying that everybody needs to make.
2: And sometimes it makes sense to do it and it doesn't feel like a loss to do it. I think it's important for me as someone who's older, and this is my second or third life, that when I was a teacher, I was all in on teaching. That was all I thought about. That was all I did. And I'm sure I missed out on some stuff. And so for me, I think doing other things helps bring perspective to my day-to-day work. And I want to make sure that when I'm mentoring younger engineers or engineering managers that I point out that like, always being online, always open sourcing, always contributing, always blogging, always vlogging You can do that, but you can also have a really good career that doesn't require you to do that in your free time. And just to open up the possibility spaces of how you can interact and how you can bring real meaning to the people around you.
1: I so agree. And I can proudly tell you that I currently have 10 people reporting to me at Texas And I can tell you probably their top two hobbies, all of them, and none of them have anything to do with programming. Mm. So important. So I love that you brought these ideas here, Steve, because I agree. It's very easy to read Twitter or very easy to read Ruby Weekly and just look Mm. at it and say, why not me?
2: Yeah. I mean, everything is configured to push you to be like, if you learn this, if you up your skills... Think about how many job offers you'll have. Think about like how much more quickly you will get promoted. And I think that always hustle lifestyle has some very obvious gains. I think the downsides of that are more invisible. It's a really hard thing to convince someone that like, yes, you will make 40 K more in the next two years if you do this. However, you will miss some other things. And it's not just like you'll miss your daughter's birthday. There's like a wholeness and a perspective about being in the world and seeing the world that you also miss. That's really hard to qualify and quantify.
1: I agree with you. And especially the pandemic is obviously still going, but things are starting to open up and like activities are resuming. Mm -hmm. And so I could see a world where developers have fallen into a pattern in the last two years where they are like hustle culture open source constantly, creating content constantly because they didn't have an alternative. But yeah. now life is resuming and we really need to step back and say, I'm gonna actively partake in this and maybe some of this stuff can go on the back burner for a little while.
2: I think one of the takeaways from talking about this and l- listening to so many of your episodes is that there is absolutely room for me to like Cheryl Sandberg the hell and like lean in. Yes. I find ways of leaning in and engaging more. And going to RubyConf, I thought like, everyone is so great. Aren't Aren't they? Aren't people so great?
1: Sometimes I feel like we don't deserve how great the Ruby community is because the, the people are just so wonderful.
2: Yeah, the diversity of talks, the diversity of people, like the interest level, like everyone was so damned earnest. I loved it. So there's space for me to like lean in and find like, how can I start to engage more and get more and contribute more in the ways that are meaningful to me? And then I think it's also important for me to help point out, like, do stuff in your free time. Spend quality time with humans as well to help model that for other people who maybe don't know that you don't have to be coding all the time to have have meaning and richness in your career.
1: That is the perfect way to wrap up, Steve. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I am going to now tackle a difficult technical text because of you. So thank you for that. I would definitely want to have you on the show again. And I really appreciate the honesty that you showed today.
2: Yeah, thank you. I feel very, very flattered and honored that you you included me. So thank you.
0: You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.